Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right, boys and girls, this is another edition of the Ben Dominich Podcast brought to you by Fox News. You can check out all of our podcasts at foxnewspodcast.com. I hope that you will rate, review, and subscribe to this one and share it with a friend if you find it of interest. Today, we have a conversation with Chad Pergram. Obviously, he is someone who would be familiar with you if you tune in to any of our Fox programs as being the expert when it comes to the state of Congress and Capitol Hill. He gives us his own perspective on what's going on with the post-midterm action the potential of a leadership race when it comes to Kevin McCarthy's position within the House, and a number of other historical precedents that people will have to deal with when they arrive in Washington. Chad Pergram, coming up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Chad Pergram, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Hey, it's a pleasure. Good to be here. So we had this incredible uh, midterm election, one that shocked a lot of people in terms of the outcome. I'm curious as to your assessment of the situation, particularly as it relates to the House of Representatives. What's going to be interesting here is that, you know, Republicans, that they're going to win the majority here. It's going to be very narrow. But anything they try to do is going to be predicated on if Kevin McCarthy or, for that matter, anybody else gets to be Speaker of the House. Now, we see no reason right now directly why Kevin McCarthy doesn't become speaker on January 3rd, because in order to do anything in the House of Representatives, you have to have a leader. You have to have somebody uh, in charge. And in fact, uh, you can't do anything in the House until you have picked a speaker. I'm not going to talk about uh, a couple of ballots in uh, the mid 19th century, one that went on for two months with Nathaniel Banks to be speaker of the House. I don't think it's going to be quite that bad, Ben, but I wouldn't rule it out. The reason is that it's about the math. Kevin McCarthy is probably going to have somewhere in the neighborhood of 221 to maybe 226, 27 seats at best. You need 218 to have the majority and to become speaker. You need an outright majority of the entire body. Well, if you only have a turning radius of five, six, seven votes, you can't you know, lose hardly anybody. Now, Nancy Pelosi, the Speaker of the House currently right now, she is the master of that. She, there is no better vote counter in the history of the Republic, Ben, about taking a small majority <laughs> and being able to ram through whatever she wants. Kevin McCarthy, especially when he was whipped, has never demonstrated that prowess. 
and nor has Steve Scalise, who is running for majority leader right now. So that's going to be a problem. Here's the issue with Kevin McCarthy. There's a reason he did not become the speaker in 2015. He didn't have the votes. He was not believed to be more conservative than John Boehner. That's one reason. Probably the best case scenario for Kevin McCarthy, and this won't happen just yet, is if uh, he didn't have Steve Scalise as his majority leader. And that's not a knock on Steve Scalise. The best scenario for him would be to have Jim Jordan as his majority leader, the Republican from Ohio, who is somebody who is affiliated closely with the Freedom Caucus. This is this group of uh, ultra-right members who basically bounced uh, you know, John Boehner out the door about seven years ago. And they're going to do the same thing to Kevin McCarthy if he's not careful. And I'll tell you something to watch right now. And nobody's talking about this. As we speak right now, Lauren Boebert from Western Colorado is in yes. a very competitive race right now, just a, literally a handful of votes with David Frisch, a Democrat. About, uh, about 400 the last that I checked. Yes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And that's going to be a, a tough you know, seat here no matter what. Nobody saw this coming. Now, one could see a scenario where the Freedom Caucus says, and Article One, Section 8 of the Constitution, Ben, says that the House and Senate, they are the final judge of their membership. And if they, if it, this gets to be a conflagration, and we had one of these seats last time, Marionette Miller Meeks in uh, Iowa, she ultimately won by six votes. And in fact, uh, the Democrat Rita Hart, um, who lost, she petitioned for a time the House of Representatives. And yes, a repeat some, of the bloody eighth. Yeah, in Indiana, Frank McCloskey. Absolutely. This is what, which kind of launched the career, you know, to leadership of Newt Gingrich. You mm -hmm. can see where there is a lot of pressure to get Lauren Boebert seated if this is kind of a squirrely result and we get into the later days of December or even January. In the case of the Bloody Eighth in Indiana, they didn't seat anybody in that uh, seat for four months, including the, the, the former Congressman, Frank McCloskey, who they ultimately seated. So that seat was vacant. So you could see where Kevin McCarthy really needs a Republican maybe in that seat. But if he seats mm -hmm. Lauren Boebert, who is affiliated with the Freedom Caucus, you talk about a thermonuclear conflagration, Ben. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelts. Look, look I, I, you know, am, I love you as a student of history when it comes to this body. This was obviously an election that did not go the way that leadership expected. No. In so many different ways. And there's a lot of people to blame, uh, you know, for that, I think. But I did find this media advisory that just came across my email box kind of interesting today representative matt gates and russ vote to discuss kevin mccarthy's uphill battle to be speaker of the house on firebrand podcast do you think yeah. that this is a scenario where the freedom caucus and some of these rabble rousers are going to pick kevin mccarthy off regardless of his degree of, of uh, sort of sinfulness when it comes to this performance in the midterm, he's the easiest one to remove. Absolutely. And, and, and Matt Gates has indicated that he didn't think that he should be, uh, you know, the speaker. Uh, it just takes a couple of votes. And I've talked to a couple of people in leadership who are telling me that this is really just a monstrous climb for Kevin McCarthy. And then if you get into leadership, if you get to be the speaker, they used to have something called the motion to vacate the chair. 
And this was the the tactic that Mark Meadows, when he was the congressman from North Carolina, they deployed this to remove John Boehner. Right. Exactly. He never got that far. In fact, he never made it live, but he put the threat out there, this sort of Damocles. And so the Freedom Caucus will insist on that being in there so that if you screw up, you know, it gets to be April, July and you haven't, you know, impeached the president or Mayorkas or, you know, pick your poison Mm -hmm. here, Merrick Garland. We're going to throw this out there and have a vote in the middle of the Congress on the Speaker of the House. That is a very live possibility. And so Kevin McCarthy is going to need the votes of people like Matt Gates. I was speaking to one Republican uh, who said, I don't see how this ever gets worked out simply because they said, you know, in the Freedom Caucus and, and some of the other conservatives, they aren't for anything. They don't vote to fund the government. They don't vote for the debt ceiling. They so, don't want to vote for so, certain people. For, they don't vote for the women's honor, the women's volleyball team. You know, they are, the term the term they used is that they are rename, political rename the, uh, male, Rename the, uh, the, the male uh, sort of centers and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, exactly. Exactly. Let me ask you this, a theory. What if in response to these Freedom Caucus demands, you simply said, if you are able to have someone who achieves a 218 vote in the Congress, Mm -hmm. then that means that we could immediately go to a speaker election. Is that something that's feasible? Because yes, the problem with that, all this is yes. that, like, they're mad at the guy, but they don't have anybody who could get to 218. Well, you remember at the top of our conversation, I talked about Nathaniel Banks and how Cobb, who was a, a speaker from Georgia, where it took vote after vote after vote mm-hmm. to get both of these men elected speaker. Now, Ben, we have not been to a second ballot for Speaker of the House since 1923. Frederick Gillette. Of, uh, of Massachusetts. And this went on for like two days and they finally worked it out. He made some concessions and, and they voted on. Now here's what could save Kevin McCarthy. And, and I'm gonna let everybody who is listening to this know they're gonna learn something right now that nobody in the US Capitol knows right now, except, <laughs> except me. In the case of Cobb and in the case of Nathaniel Banks, this is why it's important to study history. They went forever. As I said, in the case of banks, they went for two months, no Speaker of the House, meaning you're not doing anything. You're not constituting committees. You're not voting on anything. Legislation. I mean, that shuts everything down. Yes. Yes. You talk about a government shutdown. Yes. So what they ultimately did in the case of Nathaniel Banks is somebody made a motion, and I don't know who, because I don't know every last member of Congress from the mid-19th century. (laughs) I I disagree with that. You do know everything, but keep going. (laughs) Who who made a motion to say, okay, we'll take three or four more votes, and if we don't have this settled, on the next vote, what we will do is we will pass a resolution that the speaker can be elected with a simple majority, meaning the person who gets the most votes, first past the post. And so that happened, and that's how they elected the speaker. So that might be the out eventually for Kevin McCarthy if this really gets balled up for a while and you get several uh, you know, votes down the line and you get, uh, you know, and God forbid, like I said, two months or something, but let's say a couple of days, uh, but you get a little further and maybe that's how he becomes the speaker of the house. Well, Chad, now, I'm Chad throw... this is the, Go ahead. This Go is ahead. the problem for these folks though. I mean, the, the Freedom Caucus, you know, they really can't find somebody who could stand for speaker who would probably get more than 25 votes. Well, and you see, and this is Jim Jordan. You know, if they were to run Jordan, the moderates wouldn't vote for him. You see? Yeah, yeah you're right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, so I mean, and, this and, is a scenario and, where, where it's like, okay, this is an unenviable job. 
you know, yes. he's, he's going to be the speaker for essentially the same kind of majority that Nancy Pelosi just had without her capability to, you know, iron fist style, you know, get mm -hmm. people in line. Mm -hmm. And and so it's like, OK, who wants to take that on? And my assumption is that someone like Scalise, someone like Jordan doesn't actually want to take that job on. They want to wait till the point where they have a 20 seat majority or a 30 seat majority to, to take over. And yeah, maybe that's a maybe that's a better option for somebody like that. Yeah. And, I mean, and again, I, the, go ahead. You know, I've, I've wondered about this with leadership elections is that sometimes you look for the right opportunity. And there's people who have sat on the sidelines for way too long to do things. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I, I remember that, uh, you know, this this was this was at the presidential level. But, you know, Bill Clinton, people didn't think that Bush 41 was beatable in 92. And you had a lot of the people like Al Gore and Dick Gephardt who sat on the sidelines. And somebody said, uh, this is back when Newt Gingrich, the former speaker, was at the top of his mm -hmm. power. And they said, well, will he run in 1996 against President Clinton? And he said, yes. He said, because, you know, you, you go talk to President Gore and go talk to President Gephardt. <laughs> you know, they didn't run. So you've got to <laughs> run. You, there's only so many shots that you get. So you have to. Yes, you could you could you could look for a perfect, you know, scenario. Uh, I tell you, the other thing that's going to come back and get McCarthy uh, is that let's say we're down, as I said, in the low 220s, you know, somewhere between 221, 225, 226. He has promised and vowed that they will get rid of what we call remote voting, voting by proxy in the House. Yes. Now, this was implemented uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. And Speaker Pelosi at the beginning, you know, she, she is an institutionalist. She was very skeptical of this. And then she saw that she was not going to be able to win votes because there were going to be so many people out who were either sick or couldn't get here or have pre-existing health condition. I mean, you know, immunocompromised people. She had members who had cancer, you know, who just couldn't come in good faith and vote on the House floor with 435 other people. So they implemented this. So McCarthy has railed against this. Uh, members on the Republican side have railed against this, even some who take advantage of voting remotely. So guess what? If you're down to just a handful of votes and guess what? Somebody's plane doesn't get in because there's a snowstorm in the Midwest or somebody's wife you know, has a car wreck or somebody's mm -hmm. kid is homesick or whatever. He's not going to be able to pass these things because he yeah. doesn't have the votes. He doesn't have the horses here in Washington. And Pelosi, it worked to her benefit even in the Congress that we're in now because she had a bigger majority at the beginning of the pandemic and she kept it in along with the attending physician and the sergeant in arms. OK, we can debate whether that's proper, you know, this yeah, deep in the yeah. pandemic. Yes, we can. But, <laughs> but she's but that's what she did. And, you know, by gum, she wins the votes because, you know, yep. she she has that locked down. And McCarthy is adamant he's not going to have that. You know, I'm a, I'm an old hill rat, as I know you are, in terms of appreciating, you know, the, the changes that happen after elections with new people coming in. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe coming to Congress for the first time, you know, many of them uh, being people who learn about the way that they navigate things. I want you to speak for a moment, Chad, to the newly elected, the first <laughs> the, the person who's coming to Washington for the first time, Mr. Smith style, seeing those statues and everything like that. They they, they are not jaded yet. They have they they still love these things about the country, these iconic things that they are about to meet with, go through, travel through in order to vote and represent the people of their district. What's a piece of advice that you would give to this person coming in for the first time to the Congress of the United States? 
Sure. Couple of things. Get to know your other colleagues. And it, these are people on the other side of the aisle. Spend time with them. Go have a beer. Go have a drink. Uh, as soon as you can, go on what we call a CODEL, Congressional Delegation. Travel with them. I tell you, that's where you really get, the members really get to know one another and forge relationships often on the other side of the aisle, and that's going to be very important in this Congress with a narrow majority in the House and Senate. Uh, you know, you're spending eight hours on a flight to Europe or, you know, 15 hours to Asia, and, you know, you're, you're changing hotels with them and eating breakfast with them at six in the morning. You get to know somebody pretty well. That's going to be one thing. Something I've been told by members is, uh, to freshman members, is miss a couple of votes early on. Because what happens is some of these members, they and you don't want to miss a big vote, but like, as we said, remember we talked about the naming of the post office or the volleyball team, miss, maybe miss that vote, okay, if it's not your volleyball team. Because mm -hmm. what happens is that members develop this long record and then they're afraid because there's something that's pressing back in the district, or as I say, you know, their wife had a car wreck or something and they can't be here. Miss those votes early on so you don't have one of these prodigious streaks so you can actually attend and, and move around to things. Uh, I'll say the next thing that's, that is a little bit self-serving, Get to know the press corps. You know, we're not all, <laughs> we don't all have horns and fangs and the mark of the beast on our forehead. Not all, at least. Although somebody, when they, when they met me in person, they said it only confirmed that I had fangs and horns. And anyway, so Ben, so that said, but what you do is, uh, you know, most of the time that I want to talk to people, I don't want to talk to them on the record. I want to talk on background. I'm trying to get to know them. I'm asking them about their pets and their sporting interests and what they do on the weekend and their kids. Oh, I went to, I know a friend who went to school there too, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so that's how you build trust with people. And then if I need something on the record, then I can come to you on that. You, you know, it's a two-way street. And here's the other one. Get to know and say hello to the Capitol police officers and the custodians and the people who clean their offices and the people who, you know, move the furniture around and the hod carriers and the plumbers and the carpenters. We have every possible trade profession in the Capitol. Get to know those people. Say hello to them. That will go further than you can ever imagine. You know, that's wonderful advice and I think very uh, timely. But I also think that we're dealing with a, a crew of folks who are justifiably, to some extent, paranoid about the press. They don't want to talk to the press. They don't want to do, they don't trust that you're going to be off record with them. And I say this just based on the fact that I've, you know, tried to have interactions with some of them. What is a way to convince them from the staff perspective or from the press perspective that, you know what, it's actually good to be able to have this conversation. It's helpful. And as much as you may believe that the you know, corporate powers that be, you know, kind of media and the New York Times, the Washington Post is going to do you wrong. It is good for you to talk to media generally. I'll give you an example. There's a former member here, Virgil Goode from Southern Virginia. He started oh as gosh. a Democrat. I love, I love Virgil Goode. He, he became an I independent have, I, I Republican. Chewed tobacco with Virgil Goode. So yes. <laughs> and so years and years ago, when I was doing public radio, I used to interview him often, and 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 I knew his dog about his dog, and we'd talk about our dogs and things from time to time. And then one day, um, and he lost in, in 2008 to Tom Periello. This was a pretty surprising loss. He was probably, that, that was, was probably one of the more bigger upsets in 2008, Democratic year, wave year to some degree, at least uh, certainly at the presidential level. 
And so Virgil Goode made some questionable comments about Muslims. And we had the first um, Muslim ever elected to the House of Representatives, Keith Ellison from Minnesota at the time, uh, Attorney General now, Minnesota. And uh, Goode had said something to the effect of, if we aren't careful, we're going to have a whole lot more of them in here, meaning uh, suggesting that maybe Muslims shouldn't be represented to the House. And so I went to Virgil Goode in the Speaker's lobby one day here in the Capitol, and I said, uh, hey, I need to talk to you. I said, um, you know, you've always been fair with me. You've been fair. I said, but I got to ask you some tough questions about this. And this was not a general you know, interview often that I did with him about banking issues or what the Bush administration was doing or Iraq. This was going to be a little tougher. And to his credit, he answered all of the questions and we did the report. And, you know, he said what he said. Um, but the fact that we had built up this rapport for years, you know, I wasn't somebody who was unknown to him. And mm-hmm. then you get a member who's in a, quote, crisis situation where he said something controversial. And trust me, all these members, they will all say something controversial at some point. And it's not that you need a reporter to bail you out. And that's certainly not what I was doing with Virgil Goode. And like I said, this mm-hmm. is about 2006. In fact, it was 2006, I think, when this happened. But the idea that you have somebody who is going to be honest with you and is going to be a fair broker, report what your situation, come to you to actually get your take. Did you say something intemperate? Did you say something wrong? And so it works both ways. And if you don't have that, rela- that, that, that you know, that relationship, that's a problem. Uh, you, you know, I remember there at the same time, uh, you know, I'll tell you this. There was a, a freshman who's not in anymore at the time, but this was around that same time, 2006. Uh, Dave Loebsack from Iowa, who was a Democrat, who was elected and just absolutely would never even, you know, get to know me. And I, I said, well, can I said, I said, we have to work this out. You know, and he said, no, we don't, is what he said to me. And I never, ever in his years, he's retired now, ever did an interview with Dave Loebsack. He's right. We, we didn't have to work it out. I never did a single interview with the man. Well, that's kind of telling. I mean, I, I think that that's also indicative of kind of the mistakes that newbies can make. Uh, Chad, thank you so much for giving us your insight on everything that's going on on Capitol Hill and with this new Congress. I can't wait to hear you cover all these new members coming in. I tell you, I am I am ready. Uh, I will be studying uh, what we call the Facebook. This was the Facebook long before Facebook was around to Mm -hmm. try to get to know what these folks uh, look like. You know, I'm a big baseball fan, Ben, and a football fan. And I always wish that what they did in Congress is that what they would do is they would have like a number system, you know, and the NFL. Now, they've changed the number system here in the past couple of years. But like, you know, you know, kickers and punters, they were and, and quarterbacks one to 19, you know. And so if you're a, a freshman Northeast Republican, OK, those, that's your number scheme. You know, if you're a linebacker, you know, the number. Yeah, you're, 50, you're, you're at 89. So, yeah, I yeah you're, you're you're a Western Republican, you know. And, and so and so now you so you look at the pictures and you're like, I don't know what this guy looks like until you actually see them. You know, you know, there was there. You know, you know, if they're tall, tall, short, whatever, you know, so I wish they would add a number system. That's going to be my my homework here in the next few weeks. You know, I, I think that's a great idea. And uh, I think we should advocate for it uh, in this Congress. So Absolutely. thank you so much, Chad. Ben, thank you. Pleasure. More of the Ben Dominish podcast right after this. I've given my perspective on the election from, you know, a lot of different points of view at The Spectator and uh, in my own newsletter, The Transom, which you can find at thetransom.substack.com. 
And my own take on this is that there is much blame to go around when it comes to the various uh, factions and people who have been major participants in this uh, midterm election. One thing that I do want to draw out for you, though, is this idea that being a pro-lifer, being opposed to abortion, was in some way a defect, a real problem for Republicans. I simply don't think that that's true, and I don't think that there's actually any justification for it statistically. You look at the situation when it comes to the various governors who won, for instance, Ron DeSantis, Brian Kemp, Greg Abbott, Mike DeWine, all of these people were emphatically pro-life and people who had passed pro-life laws or signed into law you know, previously to the election, uh, pro-life agendas. This is not a situation where you can use any of that against them because they won overwhelmingly. At the same time, I think that these various referenda have turned out to be very disappointing for pro-lifers. In Kentucky, for instance, in Michigan, obviously we expected California to be a loss. But there was also this referenda in Montana, one that I think ought to get a little bit more attention. It essentially said that any baby born alive at any stage of development deserved the ability, the right to have doctors try to save them. There are various ways that the pro-choice lobby has tried to twist this in ways that would benefit them. But to me, this is basic humanity at work. If a child is born, if they're born, you know, in a terrible situation, they're born early, they're born in a, uh, in an event, um, or if they're born and, you know, they're just, in a situation where doctors don't know what to do, the requirement here would be that they try to save a child. The unwillingness of Montana voters to endorse this law is an indictment of themselves. The 226,000 people who voted no on this law, ensuring that it would not be put in place. God have mercy on your souls. Seriously, you have done something horrible, sinful, and wrong. You've broken faith with the entire human race. I have no pity for you. I have no pity for your position. But you should feel bad. And if any of you are listening to this podcast and you voted that way, I invite you to email me. I'm Ben at thespectator.com. You can explain to me why you believe... It is morally justifiable to let a child die. Everything about this is wrong. It is inhuman. It is un-American. It is unconstitutional. And deeper than that, it is something so sinful and wrong that it breaks our relationship with our fellow man. I cannot believe in this modern age, in 2022, that there would be almost a quarter of a million Americans who think it is fine to let a crying child in the night pass away because their existence 
is inconvenient. I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to another edition of my podcast. We'll be back soon with more to dive back into the fray. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.